Thank you, Bob. Well, good morning. It's good, all, good to see all of you this morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it is so good to be back and be with you this morning. One announcement real quick is that we were, ha- we were going to have a family meeting scheduled for today, and the elders have moved it to next Sunday. Uh, so next Sunday, right after the church, we'll have our family meeting. Uh, sorry if uh, that was, uh, you were looking forward to that this morning. Uh, we'll do that next Sunday, and it'll be right before the senior lunch. The senior lunch will still happen. Uh, it'll just be right after the meeting, and it will uh, most likely not be as long as sometimes it can be, um, but just know that that meeting is being moved to next week. Also, we have, uh, I sent out an email last night, later than normal, for a weekly update email. Um, And I wonder how many of you got that email last night? Anybody read it already? Great. Fantastic. So in there, one of the things that we mentioned is a Christmas offering. Uh, And this is something that is going to uh, help provide for our Malaga Media Center uh, trip that is happening in March. Uh, so in March, we have, and this is really exciting, uh, but coming together in the last week or two, we have uh, 16 people in our church who are planning to go to Malaga, Spain in March. Uh, we have two teams that are going. Because of the length of the trip, uh, it was just better to send two teams for 10 days each. Uh, they'll overlap for two days in Spain together, uh, be able to take a day trip to Morocco while they're there uh, to see the area in which uh, Malaga Media Center primarily is desiring to reach with the gospel in North Africa. Uh, and instead of having one team of more people uh, go for 16 to 18 days, it's just harder to get that kind of time off. And so we're really thankful, so thankful to the Lord for providing people who are able to go get that time off of work, desiring to help with the mission uh, there at Malaga. Like a media center and uh, for all of them going. So you continue to please pray uh, that passports and funds and all of those things come in. People can get the time off work that they need and, and all of that. Uh, I've put in a, a request here and so I'm hoping my boss will give me the time off uh, if at all possible. So uh, you talk to Bobby and the elders and see if they'll just let me get off for a little bit uh, for that. And so, uh, but in the Christmas offering is one where we're desiring to be able to pay for the whole project so that Malaga Media Center doesn't have to write all their supporters and say, would you please help with uh, this sidewalk project, uh, driveway, uh, and all these things for our uh, center where we're located, uh, but that we as a church might be able to take care of the whole thing for them. Uh, The project total, uh, as I put in the email, is $20,000. And roughly, if each uh, family unit, and that's a single person, couple, or family uh, of any size, uh, gives roughly around estimated $200 each, uh, we'll be able to meet that goal. Uh, I say relatively easy, but I know uh, that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and some might forget, and some might not be able to give 200 and we fully understand uh, that we pray and we ask God to provide what he uh, desires to provide through his people who give so generously already. Uh, for that, let me also say thank you for your generous giving, uh, which is also allowing the missions committee uh, to be able to fund much of the travel expenses for those who are going, so that this will be the only time we come to you and ask for money for the Malaga trip. Uh, we won't have other fundraisers or anything else. The Christmas offering is it. And if God provides fully through that, uh, then that's less that those who are going might have to pay or less that um, we have to figure out what else we're going to do with for that. So. 
please pray and give as God sees fit uh, for that Christmas offering. You can put it in with a memo line Christmas offering uh, or Malaga or Serve Malaga team or anything, probably Malaga Media Center, all of those things. Uh, Barbara and Angela know where uh, to put that and we'll appreciate that. Thank you. If you would take your Bibles, let's go to Philippians chapter 4. Bobby introduced uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, but this is the first time that our whole text uh, will be in the fourth and final chapter here of Philippians. This will be uh, the last time we look at Philippians until December 31st. Uh, We'll take a three-week break and look at uh, Advent and our Advent series, Born That Man No More May Die, uh, for the next three Sundays uh, and then pick up Philippians uh, that final day of the year, finish the book, Lord willing, in January, and then move on to the book of Exodus. Uh, so we move on to the Old Testament book as we uh, like to go back and forth between the New Testament and Old Testament uh, and between genres as well. So the last time uh, we were in the Old Testament, uh, being able to look at a different genre from that, and uh, we'll look at the Pentateuch and go to the book of Exodus Uh, So Philippians chapter 4 this morning, we're in verses 1 through 3. Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Paul begins Philippians 4.1 by stating his deep affection for the Philippian church. He says, whom I love and long for. Remember back in chapter 1, uh, if you turn a couple pages over, Paul gives this affection uh, to the church where he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, how I yearned for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. All throughout this letter, you have this language of deep affection uh, that is shown to the church in Philippi from the Apostle Paul. There we go. Now we have a recording at the same time that we have the actual sermon. It's done. Perfect. I wasn't supposed to hear that, I think. Uh, whom I love and I long for, this deep affection that is shown to the church. He loves this church. He says in chapter 1 that this church above all churches has partnered with him in the gospel. They have worked in such a way to bring about this deep fellowship and this abiding presence of care for him in the way that they think about him and the way that they provide for him. He says in chapter 1, when nobody else cared for me, you were the ones who partnered with me. If that's ever been you in a situation where you're beginning a venture, you're doing something for the first time, or you only have one supporter, your first supporter, all of a sudden that's huge to be so thankful that somebody jumped on board, saw what you were doing, and said, I want to get behind that. What a great relationship. Paul recognizes that. 
that about 10 years ago, he planted this church in Philippi, and these people have been with him, partnering in the gospel with him ever since. Even in the midst of him being imprisoned, and when some might say a missionary is no longer being productive, Paul says, you still stuck by me. You've still sent a gift to me. You've brought me a gift just recently by Epaphroditus. You, brothers, sisters, in Philippi, I love you, and I long to see you again. It'd be good for us to resurrect some of this biblical language and the way that we talk with one another in the church, right? I love you. I love you. I long for you. I can't wait to be with you. My joy and my crown, my beloved, this language again and again of oozing out, mushy-gushy, all this stuff that is affectionate, deeply affectionate, shown to the church. My joy and my crown, he's saying that my joy is wrapped up in you, and not just in them as people, but as people who are growing in Christ, people who are hearing the letter that I'm writing to them and listening and obeying and submitting to the Spirit as they seek to live a life worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1, verse 27. You are my joy. You are the crown of the work that God has called me to do. You are my beloved. What deep affection that Paul gives to the church as he opens the chapter 4 and chapter 3. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this a part, like we put it together with Pastor Bobby, the text that he did last week, is this a part of ending chapter 3? Or is this beginning chapter 4? Or is it both? I think it kind of fits in this framework. It worked really well, as uh, Bobby looked at last week. And, and I think it also fits in with chapter 4 and beginning in verses 2 and 3. Why? Well, look at the relational deposit that Paul is entering into the account of the Philippians. He's putting in a big relational language of affection deposit. I love you. I long for you. You are my beloved. Please remember that. Because I'm about to say something pretty hard. And not everybody's going to like it. That's good. That's wise and loving, isn't it? I don't think in any way it's manipulative. I think he's relationally understanding that this reminder says this message that we're about to hear is coming from someone who loves us. That's good to remind, be reminded of, to remember for us. I had, an R, uh, I had a dorm supervisor when I was an RA in college, and he reminded us before the students came uh, in our training, he said, guys, now before you take out a big deposit, you have to make sure that there's enough money in the account. Before you take out a big withdrawal, you have to make sure that there's enough money in the account. So if you're going to go to a guy and you're going to say, uh, listen, there's some things that we're seeing uh, that need to be addressed. And in our school, we would give these pieces of paper that were called demerits. You would be in trouble. If you got so many demerits, you'd be uh, shipped off uh, back home. Uh, you would get a one-way ticket back home with those. Uh, it was not a good thing. And so if you are going to make that kind of withdrawal relationally, make sure that there's enough money in the account to sustain that. That was helpful advice that has stuck with me now ever since then, 20-some years. And being able to see that maybe this is what Paul is doing, of making a deposit so that he can relationally make a withdrawal. He does genuinely love them. 
He does have great affection for them, finds his joy in their following Jesus. These things are absolutely true. But Paul writes in the next couple of verses of a situation that's happening that is and will continue to cause disunity if left unchecked. He says, and we read, I entreat, I implore Euodia. And I entreat or I implore Syntyche to agree in the Lord. We infer from that that they're not. We know that these two are women, and we know that there's an issue that's happening. What the issue is, we don't know for sure. And we don't necessarily need to know. It's obvious that God doesn't want us to know. But we know that there's an issue that's happening that's causing them to not agree in the Lord. And it's risen to such a level that uh, Epaphroditus, when he came to Paul, evidently must have shared with him what was happening. So much so that Epaphroditus, in his 1,200-mile journey from Philippi to Rome to visit Paul while he's in prison, and the time there, that the situation must be of one, that it must still be, Epaphroditus must be confident it's still going on. Maybe it's been going on for a long time. But he must be confident. Because remember, it must take months for him to travel that road to get from Philippi to Rome to see Paul, to give him the gift. But remember, he almost died on that road. So that would have delayed the time. And now he's going to travel back. He's going to travel back with this letter. And, and this letter is most likely going to be writ, read to the church like this on one sitting. Epaphroditus would have come back into town. There would be excitement. Hand the letter to one of the elders. Elders would say, next gathering church, we've got a letter from the Apostle Paul. You know that's going to create buzz. People are going to want to come and hear what Paul's written to the church. Now, the popcorn has popped and everybody's sitting down listening. What's Paul going to say to us? You imagine as he's read the letter, there's some excitement, some, this is good, we, we love this. Yes, keep pursuing Christ. We ended chapter three with exertion of pursuing Christ. And then we get to chapter four. And within verse two, you got two ladies whose faces are red. Two families who are looking at the ground. Everybody not making a peep. And you have to imagine that everybody's going, did he really just read out names? This is awkward. This is not the first time that Paul in this letter has made hints of disunity within this church. Uh, back in Philippians chapter 1-9, when he's praying for the church, he says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Is there a lack of love currently? Is this why Paul is wanting them to grow in their love for God and their love for each other because there's a need for that? Philippians 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Those words are not accidents. It's like in Ephesians chapter 4, in the first couple of verses in that chapter, where Paul continually uses the word one, one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. That one being consistently repeated gives this message of unity all throughout. The same is true here. That you, when I hear of you, your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, he's hinting at disunity within the church or the possibility of it. Church, those who live in light of the gospel, those who desire to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ will have gospel humility. And gospel humility is required for gospel unity to happen. You cannot have genuine unity without true humility because otherwise your unity is a farce. One built to like a house of cards. So there must be genuine humility that happens. Earlier in the letter, he is calling them to stand firm. And it's against opponents. Stand firm against those who speak those things that are not true. But here, when he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, there can be also a standing firm on doing what is right, of not giving in of not pushing something under the rug, but of standing firm and saying, this is right, this is good, this must be done. We must talk about this. They need to stand firm towards each other, with one another. Well, who are these ladies? And what is exactly happening here? Well, Paul makes three things clear that will continue to walk us through the narrative. One, these ladies are both at fault, both of them. Number two, they are both believers. And number three, there is hope for restoration. They are both at fault, they are both believers, and there is hope for restoration. Number one, they are both at fault. The grammar shows us this. And even in your English, it comes through. Sometimes that isn't always the case. But normally when Paul would write, or any other biblical author, or you and I, we would see I implore or I entreat you, Odia and Syntyche. We would just have one verb. But the problem with that is that you, Odia, might feel like I'm closer to the verb, and therefore the action is given primarily to me and not to the other person. So how does Paul make it completely fair so that there's no leveling of any kind of threat, uh, not threat, but any kind of injustice towards him or the other person looking and going, see, told you, it's your fault. The verb is with your name, not mine. Paul does this by throwing in the extra verb. I entreat Euodia. And actually, Euodia's name is first in the sentence. Euodia, I entreat. And Syntyche, I entreat a second verb. And the second verb, one extra word that makes it completely clear that both of you ladies are being addressed. Both are at fault. Now, maybe one of them said or did something. Maybe Euodia initiated and said something, did something, made the offense. But it could also be that Syntyche now shared it with everyone and is just as much at fault. Maybe it's Syntyche who then took that small offense that maybe Euodia didn't even realize was an offense. And Syntyche made it a huge deal now. Most often, interpersonal conflict starts out really small, doesn't it? Starts out really small and it gets bigger over time. Time, if anything else, does not dissolve interpersonal conflict. It's like sin. Sin left untreated does not magically go away. It must be taken care of. It has to be repented of. It has to be uh, worked through, brought forward. The light of the gospel has to shine on it to let the darkness go away. 
Interpersonal conflict starts out small, gets bigger over time. If things were brought to the other person right away, imagine so much hardship, bitterness, fighting could be avoided. If it wasn't pushed under the rug, but genuinely taken care of with gospel humility on both sides, repenting of sin, making that clear, so much difficulty could be avoided. It's like if you see the check engine light come on in your car for the first time. Now, for those of you who, like me, have had cars that the check engine light is always on, you just learn to disregard it. You just, you kind of know what it's for. It's an O2 sensor or something. Uh, You just get over it. I even was with a guy one time, and he was in college, and we would drive to church an hour each way, and he had a small car, and he just put a piece of black duct tape over it. I just don't even want to see it anymore. If that's your card, that's fine. That's up to you. But if it comes on for the very first time, all of a sudden, you immediately start to panic, just a little bit. If you're anything like me, because you're not really a car guy, you don't really know, what could that be? You begin to panic a little bit. If you just ignore it, then you could turn a simple problem, a possibly, possibly simple problem, into a major one. Or if you take out a hammer and smash the light, to take care of the light, to turn it off so it's not bugging you, so you don't see it anymore. Now you've escalated things extremely. But if you stop and have the light checked out, that little inconvenience, you may be able to know how exactly to fix the problem. There is a problem with these ladies. It's public. Paul gives their names. It's ongoing. And Paul sees that it needs to be addressed. Commentator Dennis Johnson says, in the 21st century, it may strike us as rude to name individuals in a public document and then to correct them, compounding their embarrassment. It is rude, right? We think that. But for the ancient writers, and for Paul in particular, to avoid naming these women would have been far more harsh. One of the marks of enmity in polemical letters is that the enemies are left unnamed and thus denigrated by anonymity. So Paul is being kind in listing other names. He's being kind because now the situation is brought to the surface. The light of the gospel shone on. No one can hide from it. Ladies, there's a problem. And it's reached to such a level that we have to address this publicly. And your embarrassment now in this meeting where every, this whole church is gathered to hear this letter, your embarrassment now will be nothing in comparison to the weight of eternal glory. So take care of it now. Take care of it now. Whatever the situation might be, is nothing in comparison to your eternal soul. Paul pleads with them. He doesn't belittle them or rail on them. He just says, agree in the Lord. It is not one of you who needs to work on something and get back to the other, but both of you need to make a list of all the ways you can help the relationship, of all the ways you might have harmed the other person in word or deeds, and and then seek forgiveness and restoration. It never helps restoration of interpersonal conflict for one person to come and say, if they would just do this, then I would do this. Husbands, wives, does that ever help anything? If you would just have dinner ready when I came home at 5 p.m., everything would be fine. No, it wouldn't. Because the way you're talking, you're making it clear that nothing will actually appease you except genuine repentance of your own selfish idols. Right, men? Right, ladies? 
So we know that it's not a matter of just if the other person would change. It's our heart that we look at and say, this must change. The issue is brought before the whole church because it's causing or will cause disunity. No doubt there's already awkwardness, maybe even sides. If it's left unchecked, it will further drag down those two ladies and the church. And ultimately, and worse, not only the possibility that their unrepentance might lead to other things, church discipline, or worse, that it proves that they're no longer, that they were never a Christian in the first place if they never repent. But worse than that is that these two ladies in this situation is causing ignominy and shame to the name of Christ. John chapter 13, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Your love, your unity as a church is a mark of evangelism towards those outside. And you're keeping hold, grasping hold on what was a small issue in interpersonal conflict, ladies, can mar that. They are both at fault. Number two, they are both believers. Not only are they both at fault, but they are both believers. This is clear, Paul makes in a few ways. Look at the text. Ladies, you two agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. You have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And whose names are written in the book of life. He pleads with them because they are believers. He doesn't plead with every non-Christian who lives in Philippi. Hey, get your act together, pal. Treat your wife with respect. He doesn't care to spend a whole letter dealing with that. Why? Because the non-Christian is not living in light of the gospel, does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them and able to work through it with gospel resolution. But Christians can agree in the Lord. You can only agree in the Lord if you are in the Lord. Wayne Mack, writing about 40 years ago in a counseling journal, he says, evidently a root of bitterness and resentment had sprung up between these two ladies. These two ladies were Christians. Paul said, be of the same mind in the Lord. That statement is superfluous unless they were in the Lord. In verse 3, he spoke of these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel. When the Greek word for struggle, uh, or you see here, you have labored side by side. That word in the Greek is struggle. When that word is transliterated into English, we get the word agony. And literally what Paul was saying, that these two women have agonized with him in the gospel. The same word was used to describe soldiers in battle who were fighting for their lives. Paul also uses it to describe athletes who were giving their all to win a race in 2 Timothy chapter 2. These women are in the Lord, agree in the Lord. And these women have agonized with me in the gospel. It can be because of the language that Paul is using of how they agonized or, or worked, labored with him in the gospel that he knows them. Acts chapter 16, when he planted the church in Philippi, it could be that they were one of the early believers or one of the early people within that that church plan. That Paul has known them, that these women are dear to him. Remember the language? I love and long for my joy and my crown, my beloved. Is he speaking to the whole church? Yeah, I think so. But does he specifically maybe have in mind these two women? He's, I love you. 
I'm speaking to you what is hard because I love you. They are in the Lord. They have worked for the gospel, and their names are written in the bond in the book of life. These women, as Paul writes, are God's children, are God's people, who eternity will show that they are in Christ. So please, ladies, I'm pleading with you to agree in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, a passage I alluded to earlier, Paul writes in verse 1, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, all of you together as one. Notice verse 3 in the middle of that passage. This passage is full of humility and unity, all in relation to the calling to which God has called us. In the context of gospel work that you have been called into, brothers and sisters, When you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone to save you, it's not a personal decision that only affects you, but it unites you to Christ himself and to all those who are in him. And now be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. Ladies, agree in the Lord. You are in the Lord. Agree with one another in the Lord. Be eager to maintain the unity God has already given you. Be eager to maintain it. Again, gospel unity requires gospel humility. It takes this kind of gospel humility to achieve gospel unity. Pride cannot coexist within a gospel unified community. And Paul calls on them to be eager instead to maintain the unity of the spirit. Agree in the Lord. Again, Dennis Johnson, looking at the full weight of the gospel, And how that ought to help us to see interpersonal conflict. He's going to say, gospel, this big. Interpersonal conflict, this big. He says, how then can we fail to respond to such divinely imparted encouragement, comfort, love, companionship? He's referring to some phrases in Philippians chapter 2. How can we refuse to lay down selfish ambition and vain conceit? our hurt feelings, our competitive urges. Having received such love from God, let us then beg our Savior to turn our hearts inside out, to treasure others as more important than ourselves, to care about their needs even more than we care for ourselves, to fight for unity, he says, by cultivating the humility that we see in Jesus the king who stooped to save us. Both of them. Both of them must do this. It cannot be the one who initiates and alone does it. Both of them. Both of them being able to say, God, and begging God to turn their hearts inside out, to treasure others more important than themselves, to have gospel humility that we see in Christ. Ultimately, it's a model of the gospel. When we allow interpersonal conflict to continue and we only look at the other person and say, you change, and then I'll consider following. 
That is denying the gospel. That is not preaching the gospel at genuine repentance and seeing the beauty of all that Christ has done for you, but is denying it and saying, no, no, right now, I get it, salvation, but right now it's me. You hurt me. So what's on stake here is me. And ultimately what we're saying is I'm on the throne and not Jesus. Take care of me and then we'll talk. That's not how, that's not how gospel unity happens. That's not in any way going to bring about gospel unity because what's not there? Gospel humility. If they don't, if they don't agree in the Lord, as a result, their conflicts will become more serious. Their testimony becomes more ineffective. Their joy and peace in Christ will dissipate. They become increasingly anxious, angry, bitter, resentful, depressed, frustrated, bored, contentious, irritable, impatient, lonely, insecure, and riddled with guilt and hopelessness. As a result, their families suffer, their works suffers, the world suffers, and great reproach is brought upon the name of Christ. Again, that's Wayne Mack writing several decades ago on this passage and how it affects interpersonal conflict in the church. All of those things will suffer if you don't take care of what was small and take care of it now before it gets big, before it takes over and disunifies you, your families, the church, the witness of the name of Christ. Do so in light of the gospel. Because thirdly, not only are they both at fault, not only are they both believers, but thirdly, and thank God there's a third, there is hope for restoration. There's hope for restoration. Notice where Paul goes with this. One, we can't lose the context of the whole letter. The whole letter is oozing with the gospel. The gospel transforms everything. Don't let disunity transform everything here. Let the gospel transform everything. We can't lose the context of the, the whole letter that is speaking over and again of the gospel and of our need to walk worthy as citizens of the gospel. But notice what he does in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, so someone else, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, true companion, true yoke fellow, there's someone who's his partner, but Paul's calling on someone else. And ultimately, I think there's a calling on the whole church. Clement, the rest of my fellow workers, he's listing other people who are there in Philippi, one by name and others by grouping. But I think in all reality, he's calling on the church you who have labored with me, you folks who know and believe the gospel, help these women. It's not only them. Remember, I'm writing this letter. It's public to a whole church. You now all know about it. Why would he do that if not for them to be helped by everyone? He calls on others and the church to help them, to help walk with them, to be able to say the light of the gospel has shown on this. Let's take care of it. Let's take care of it now. It didn't get taken care of when it was small. Let's do it now. Let's repent. Walk with Christ. Pursue him more than you pursue injustice and wrongs and bitterness. Pursue Christ. Forgive because you've been forgiven. Remember, the gospel is this big. 
in a personal conflict this big. You've been forgiven this massive debt of all your sins that you have ever committed and will ever commit was put on the person of Christ. Let that forgiveness you've been given issue forgiveness to your brother or sister who sinned you, wronged you, said something, spread lies about you, whatever it might be, a thousand options that it could be. We've all been there. We all know what this is like. Every one of us, I'm going to guarantee, every one of us has been in a situation of interpersonal conflict. If you're married, you've been in it hundreds of times. (laughs) But the point is not that there's interpersonal conflict and, oh, that's so embarrassing. The point is if you don't respond to the gospel. But we've been in it hundreds of times and yet there's been repentance. There's been a, honey, I'm so sorry. Let's make this right, especially when others are brought in to help. There's a recognition and a seeing of our sin and of our own heart and the maliciousness and the sin that so easily is within us that longs for us to make right this, in, this horizontal relationship that we have with this person that we love dearly. Because of the vertical relationship that we have with God, we want this relationship to be in the same way. We love the peace and grace that we have with God. We want that to be here horizontally as well. And so being able to work out from the gospel, I've been redeemed. Christ himself, the son of God, came and he who was in glory, the very form of God, stooped all the way down, not just to earth, but to death, and death on a cross, that he might save us sinners and swap with us. We gave him all of our sins, and he didn't give any of it back to us. He didn't say, no thanks, you can keep it. He didn't give us any other garbage. He gave us his perfect righteousness, so that we might be perfectly righteous in the eyes of the Father. That is your status as a Christian. Perfectly righteous in the eyes of your Father, and you say, yeah, but I still sin, so I've got to hide, I've got to be in shame, right, and guilt. No, you don't. I don't know where that's at, because when you do sin and you call on Jesus to forgive you, what is he doing right now? He's actively interceding on your behalf before the Father. So he already forgave your sins on the cross when he took them on himself, but now he's doing even more so in interceding on your behalf before the Father so that, no, you don't need to cower in guilt and shame because of your sins. You can go to him and say, Father, this is what I've done. I don't know the mess I've created or what all the ramifications are going to be. But you have loved me and I can't get over that. And I come in full repentance, hands open. I have nothing to hold on to except for you. And I'm leaning on you and your grace because you continue to give me grace and I don't deserve it. And repentance does not make demands. Repentance does not say conditions. But repentance looks at their own heart and says, Father, help me. And may those around me help me as well. Church, you need to surround these women and help them. Ladies, you must agree in the Lord. No temptation or trial has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is always hope in the midst of any and every temptation and situation. 
applied to interpersonal conflicts, this means that any two people who really want to solve their problems can do so by the power and grace of God. There is no problem that God cannot solve. The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Matthew 19, 26. No situation is hopeless or beyond repair. Wounds can be healed. Friendships can be restored. Relationships can be cemented when two people will handle their problems God's way. Church, come around them. Church, help them. The scriptures declare again and again the wisdom of listening to counselors. The wise of heart will accept and obey commandments, but a prating fool will come to ruin. Proverbs 10.8. Wise men store up knowledge. He who heeds instruction and correction is in the way of life. He who refuses reproof goes astray and causes others to go astray. Proverbs 10.17. Where no counsel is, the people fall. Proverbs 11.14. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to counsel, Proverbs 12, 15. There's six or seven more, but we'll continue to go on with something else. Knowing the point, listening to counsel, to others who come around you and say, this is a problem, this needs to be taken care of. Brother or sister, let us help you. Church, help them, restore them. But the warning in Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Church, come around them. Church, help them. Notice that Paul does not say, just bury the hatchet. Forget it. Doctrine doesn't matter. Just love one another. Just case sera, sera. Also, he doesn't say that they have to have perfect agreement on every single nuance of theology. Uh, agree in the Lord. There's a problem here. There's a mental attitude, a heart direction that needs to be changed, a fundamental orientation with its priorities that needs to be focused on, centered on the gospel, not on your hurts, not on what's been wronged, not on the past and not on the bitterness, but focus on the gospel, the forgiveness you've been given in Christ and the forgiveness you will now usher to someone else. So a conflict resolution checklist, agree in the gospel, Love the gospel. You say, I'm in conflict, uh, this interpersonal conflict with someone else. Let me ask you the question, what does the gospel mean to you? When was the last time you looked at your sin in light of the gospel? When was the last time you were overwhelmed with your own depravity and your own movement towards sin so regularly and then reminded that God in his grace loved you and poured out forgiveness for all of your sins? When was the last time the gospel moved you to awe in God again, moved you to weep over your sins and to trust in Christ? Conflict resolution checklist, agree in the gospel. Number two, work hard to develop perfect agreement on matters of greatest importance. Work hard to look at what are the matters that we must agree on and others that we can give grace on. Understand the ugliness of your sin. Number three, and work hard and humbly on central issues. The peripherals will take care of themselves. But on areas where we need to agree and the scriptures call us to agree, agree. But on the peripherals, be able to let them take care of themselves. Brothers and sisters, there is hope. No matter what the situation might be. It might be something that just came up. might be something that was longstanding. might be with a parent. might be with a parent who has passed away. And you still live under some guilt of how that relationship ended. 
It might be with a parent who is not well, but still living and can still be resolved. Brothers and sisters, all things are possible within God, the one who has redeemed you. Let him continue to sustain you and guide you, even in the midst of interpersonal conflict in church, life groups, friends. Would you come around and would you nudge, urge, love your brothers and sisters enough to say, enough is enough. This needs to be taken care of. May God in his kindness continue to resolve any issues of conflict in this church, uh, in our lives, in our relationships with others, for his glory and for the furtherance of the gospel, that the gospel is seen as priority for us. And the church sees those who love one another. And thus the name of Christ is lifted high and glorified. Our Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look into your word, to be able to sit under uh, the teaching of Paul, to be able to look at an issue that all of us face, and to be able to do so, we pray, with gospel uh, priority, gospel lens. Father, we thank you for Christ who entered into all, every single interpersonal conflict imaginable, who took on all of our sins, all of the sins that we so easily can engage in when we are frustrated or hurt or maligned and we hold on to things and all of the things we say and mumble and breathe under our breath and all of those things we so quickly do, bolstering up our own uh, side and our own defense, all of those sins Christ took on himself. Father, would you as your people help us to see all of that has been cared for, taken on the cross, and to be able to revel in the grace and the freedom that Christ has given to us in salvation. Father, help us to be a gospel-centered people. Strive us, uh, help us to strive towards, be eager towards gospel humility that brings about gospel unity for your glory and for our further, furtherance of our joy to be found in Christ alone, we pray. At this time, we have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper.